So I spent a little time praying, putting together a message, and actually I was just asking God to, to put together a message and, and waiting on the Lord, and, and uh, the Lord began to bring different thoughts, and I began to jot them down, and pretty soon I was like, okay, I think I have the message that the Lord is, is putting on my heart, and, and then as I began to look at it, I realized, oh, this is very appropriate for Christmas, and I had no plan of, of putting together anything. I wasn't thinking about Christmas or anything like that, but, but um, it really kind of is uh, uh, appropriate for the season that we're in. I wonder how, I ever wonder what it would have been like to be there in the time of Jesus when he appeared. Uh, it must have been just a remarkable time you know, the, the good thing is, is we have the scriptures and we get to a read four different accounts of the story of Jesus Christ and, and how he came and, and what he did. And as you look at those gospels, all four of them uh, have a very unique and different approach to relaying the, the story of the gospel to us. And it, it goes right down to how each of them open up the stories. You go to the book of Matthew and it starts... Uh, it goes into the genealogy, but basically it introduces the parents, uh, I should say parent, and what do you call Joseph? He was the step-parent, I guess. Uh, uh, but you, it introduces that, uh, introduces the fact that, G, uh, that Jesus was the son of God, that the birth was miraculous. Uh, conceived, she was con sorry, Jesus was conceived of the virgin. And so it starts with, with that in the book of, of Matthew. Luke backs up a little bit further and starts with uh, the miraculous events surrounding the birth uh, of John the Baptist, who was going to introduce Jesus and kind of get the, uh, the introduction of the gospel and of, of the Messiah who was coming to Israel. And uh, it starts with that and then goes into, again, the miraculous events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John takes a whole different approach to introducing the, uh, uh, Jesus, and it goes all the way back before creation, and it starts like this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and his life was the light of men, and you jump down a few verses, and the Word, who was with God and was God, the pre-incarnate Son of God, the Son of God in eternity before even creation, becomes flesh and lives among us, the only begotten of the Father, Jesus Christ. That's John's introduction to the Gospel. Mark, where we're going to be looking today at a few things, he takes a whole other entirely different approach. He doesn't go all the way back to pre-creation. He doesn't talk about uh, Mary and Joseph. He doesn't talk about uh, the miraculous events surrounding uh, John the Baptist. He just jumps right into the meat of the, of the and the, just the hardcore, uh, what the gospel is all about. So, if you want to turn, you can look at Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He just dives right in, and this is where he starts. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, 
Behold, I send my messenger before. And let's just stop there right for a minute. He jumps, as he opens up to the beginning of the gospel, then the next thing he says, just like it was written in Isaiah the prophet. Every one of us at times is going to be, even though, even though you experience God, even though you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, even though you see him at work in your life, even though if you're, if you're walking close to him, he's the air you breathe, like some of those songs that we sing. Uh, this is the air I breathe. This is, I forget the rest of it. You probably remember it. Uh, anyways, uh, this is my daily bread. All right, and I'm forgetting the other lyrics, okay? If you're walking close to the Lord, he's all of that to you and, and a lot more. But I guarantee you, because you're human, there are times when you may doubt or wonder or just, you just briefly, whatever, you have your moments. What if, what if someone were to tell you that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that, that it can be proven to you beyond any reasonable doubt, irrefutable evidence that the Bible is the word of God, absolutely is the word of God, and you can bank on it, and you can stand on it, and there is irrefutable proof. I told a guy at work years ago that. I was all excited about it, and, and he, he, was, he was kind of interested. You could tell he's one of these people seeking, and he would say little things and ask questions, and, and one day I just told him, I said, you know, if you ever had time to sit down, I says, in 15 minutes, I can prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt you will have no leg left to stand on, you will know absolutely certainly that the Bible is the word of God and that everything it says is true. He looked at me. He never took me up on the offer to have that conversation. That was a little bit too scary for him because then what do you do? If, if, if you know absolutely for certain it's 100% true, what are you going to do with that information if you don't want to accept it? That's a problem. But the proof, there, there's a lot of proof. There's the archaeological, archaeological evidence, every dig uh, er, that they do in these ancient cities that the Bible talks about. You know, they keep finding the cities that the Old Testament talks about that people said, you know, you go, there are times where people stopped at some of these things so they never existed. Fairy tales. Oh, pretty soon they find it. Then they find the next city. They dig up the records and, and the names of the kings uh, they're just like the Bible records them. The events, when they find their written history, just exactly to the T like the Bible records it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. You have that. You have the um, 66 books of the Bible written over 1,500 years by, uh, uh, now my mind's going blank, how many authors? Somebody help me. There you go. Thank you. And somehow it's a story that starts at the beginning and ends at the end, well, not really the end, but ends at the beginning, or it, it takes you, the end is into eternity, and somehow it's all one very succinct story. That's pretty miraculous all in itself. But then the, the biggest thing, where you can absolutely know for sure that you're on the right track, is prophecy. And, and Mark, and it just jumps right into this. Matthew does quite a bit of this also. Just like it's written in one of the prophets. Now, um, I'm just going to remind you some things. You probably know this. 
But let me just briefly scroll through some things here. Things that the scripture foretold, foretold to the T about Jesus Christ. So many particular details. Coming on the donkey was foretold. The crucifixion, uh, betrayal by a friend, and I'm sorry I jumped too far in here. There we go. He was going to be born in Bethlehem, be born of a virgin. He would be a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of King David. There would be the incident with Rachel weeping with her children. Uh, Christ would return from Egypt. Uh, the ministry would begin in Galilee. He would have victory over Satan, which Mark dump, jumps right into right in the beginning here, and it's a very important piece of the gospel. He would be a worker of miracles, a teacher from God. His forerunner, John the Baptist, was foretold. Now we get to where I jumped right in the middle there. Coming on the donkey, crucifixion, betrayal by a friend. He would be rejected by his own people. Uh, he would be beaten, spit upon. Uh, they would gamble for his clothes. He would be numbered with the transgressors, crucified with the thieves. Uh, let's see here, the 30 pieces of silver. And then he would, the shepherd would be struck and the sheep would flee. They would look on the Messiah who they had pierced, the crucifixion. Uh, no bones would be broken. Uh, he would be buried with the rich. Uh, the resurrection was foretold. Uh, he would conquer death. He would become a stone to stumble upon. Uh, people believe, and then you have a lot of people who absolutely hate the gospel message. They hate it so bad they have to persecute, they have to kill, they have to do anything they can because they hate this message so bad. He would be a stone to stumble on. The Gentiles would believe. So you've got all of that. And, and I'm going to just mention one. It's, it's very complicated. You almost have to be a scientist to figure it out. But you can actually get a book that breaks down this prophecy in Daniel. Daniel, Daniel gives a prophecy, and when you study it out, he was actually foretelling to the very exact day, the day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the, on the donkey. Foretold to the day hundreds of years before it happened. Uh, that one has been tried to be debunked because it's so absolutely mind-blowing that that could be done, but it's, it's, it's there, and if you study it, it's, it's the real thing. Um, you have prophecies about the end times. Knowledge would be increased. Knowledge is growing at, a, at an exponential rate that's, that's unbelievable. Nothing's ever happened like this in, in the history of mankind. That was prophesied. Travel would become possible for the masses. Uh, people would be able to watch things from afar. Uh, you go to uh, uh, Revelations where, uh, uh, some of you may not even have read this, but just where they, there's the two witnesses that are killed and their bodies lay in the streets for three days and the whole world, because the whole world watches them and is watching uh, what they do and is watching their dead bodies after the whole world is. Television foretold 2,000 years before it happened. Uh, the temple is going to exist in Israel again. This will be interesting because that is such a time, or such a, wow, powder keg for Israel to ever try to build a temple. It's foretold that's going to happen. There's going to be a one world government. Absolutely amazing how much talk there is uh, uh, here and there by government leaders that that's what needs to happen. That was foretold thousands of years ago. This extinction of man would become possible. And then don't forget Israel. Don't forget Israel. 
so many prophecies and promises made about Israel. Um, think about this. And there's so much hatred toward Israel. Um, and a lot of that was prophesied and foretold as well. But here's some prophecies. The land God promised to Israel was given to them forever. And you've got a lot of people that don't believe Israel should have the land. Uh, well, they're fighting against God. And, and, and here's the thing. If they could undo that, then they would prove God a liar, and they would prove the Bible false. Not going to happen. God's not going to be proven a liar. He's not going to be proven false. His word is not going to be proven false. God gave the land of Israel to the Israelites forever. It's a promise all over the scriptures. Now, he also said some, made some other promises. If they disobeyed and they left God, he would chastise them and he would scatter them to every nation under heaven. It's happened to Israel more than once, more than once. But he gave a promise that he would bring them back. And he did again in 1948, and they became a nation again. Prophesied. Promises of God proves the scripture true. And in spite of all the hatred against Israel, it still happens because God is God. They are his people, and he has promised. He said they would become a proverb, a byword. They are. Uh, you can use, just think about things that are sometimes said derogatory about Jews. Uh, that has happened to them. They, he prop, it was prophesied that the desert would again blossom and supply, supply food to the other nations. They're doing that. They irrigate. They export food. Uh, they would be like a fire to the surrounding nations. Israel, teeny, tiny, impossible, impossible, tiny little nation has a military power that's absolutely unbelievable for such a teeny, tiny, tiny little country. Uh, he said they would be like a fire to the surrounding nations. And this is a pretty amazing prophecy. Jerusalem would become a cup of trembling to all nations. It is such a problem. It's such a source of worry. It's such a course of constant friction and strife for the entire world, the city of Jerusalem, and what are we going to do about Jerusalem? All that was prophesied. All of it was prophesied. And um, when you understand that, that's why it was it Peter that says we have a more sure word of prophecy. Okay, you can bank on the word of God. Everything it says is true. Everything that is prophesied. And, and what's really interesting, when you, I love when you talk about prophecy, is how God introduces himself in the book of, of Isaiah. He says, let me see if I can pull this up here uh, and just read this to you. Um, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. And then here's how, what he says about himself. It's, I am God, there's nobody like me. He says, I declare the end from the beginning. And um, let's see here. And from ancient time, things not yet done, saying, uh, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all of my purpose. In other words, I am God. There's nobody else like this. There's nobody that can do what I do. I am going to tell you the future. I'm going to lay it out 
thousands and hundreds of years, depending on which prophecies you're looking at. Well, I guess by now they're all, they're all thousands of years. Uh, but some of them were hundreds of years before they came to pass. I will tell you the future before it happens. I'm going to lay it out in detail. This is how you can know that I am God and that you're on the right track. This is how you can know. When you have a more sure word of uh, prophecy that you can stand upon. So back to, back to what we're actually uh, looking at here. Uh, oh, I wanted to look at this too as well. The gospel, the beginning of the gospel. Back to Mark chapter 1. So I wonder, I wonder what it must have been like. You know, Israel was used to some pretty crazy things. They were the people of God. Think back. They, uh, you know, you had Abraham, who was uh, not that anything crazy per se happened with Abraham except that he knew God that's pretty crazy all in, its, all in itself he walked with God he had a relationship with God God would show up and talk to Abraham and tell him things and, and God gave him the miraculous child Isaac uh, who Sarah who couldn't, who couldn't conceive and, and, and when she was how old was Sarah when she finally had the baby was she I want to say 90 was it? I don't remember. Anyways, uh, look it up later. But she was way past the childbearing years when she had Isaac. It was miraculous in all accounts. Um, you had, I mean, he was, he was the father of the faith. So Israel, and he was the kind of the patriarch of Israel. So they had that in their history, and they had that history to read. So they had that kind of a heritage already. Then they end up in Egypt. They end up in Egypt, and for several hundred years, they're slaves. Things don't look too good. Things aren't going well at all. Seems like God's forgotten about them. And then you know the story. God raises up Moses. And through crazy, crazy, miraculous things, God saves them out of Egypt, judges Egypt, brings them out to be his people. And then, so they were, they were used to pretty crazy things. I mean, uh, they had Mount Sinai, and the presence of God comes down on Mount Sinai. Remember, this whole mountain is shaking. It's, the whole top of the mountain is burning with this fire that's the presence of God. And uh, uh, they heard an audible voice of God. You've got the, the, the fire that would appear over the tabernacle every night, and, and the cloud by day. And you had them uh, where they were instances where they had no water when they were in the desert, and God would before all the people tell Moses, strike the rock, and strike the rock, and boom, that thing would split open, and a river of water would come out of the rock, and they could drink. You had, they had no food. And for 40 years, God sent manna, miraculous bread from heaven. Uh, every night would rain down, and they'd go out and gather the bread. They had them when they were complaining for the, for the, for the quails. And, you know, it's no surprise, I guess, after Jesus did the two miracles of feeding the thousands, multiplying the loaves, and then they're in the boat, and Jesus says, beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they begin to have this conversation, and they're talking amongst themselves, and they say, it's because we didn't bring bread. And I love what Jesus says. He says, how can you guys even have that conversation? How could you even talk about lacking bread after what you just saw me do twice? 
How can that even be the remotest thought? But you know what? It's what we all do all the time. We get into a pickle, just like Israel. We get into a, a problem, and they had a circumstance that really stunk and looked impossible. But when they got God involved, God showed up, and it worked out. And Jesus was kind of showing he has the same power. He's the Son of God, and he can, you know, fix things. But back to this, as it is written, verse 2, is written Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appears, preaching. I like what his message was in verse 4. It's real simple. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Pretty simple. Now you jump down a few verses. You know what Jesus preaches in verse 15? It's pretty similar. Here's, here was Jesus' message that he was preaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, repent, repentance, that's one of those weird old Bible words and we find it kind of scary. We don't really maybe know what it means. What we think it means is a guy with a billboard standing out in the street who's maybe a little bit, we think, acting kind of crazy and he's got a big sign that says repent and he's screaming. That, and, and we don't really even know what it means, but we know that's where that word goes. Somebody on a street with a big sign and we think he's kind of crazy that's so far off from what repentance is so far off the word repent simply means to turn this means to turn that's all it means and the idea is this see this is why jesus came jesus has had a plan from the very beginning he created this earth he created humanity and humanity very, very quickly failed. We didn't make it past the first man and the woman without dying. You realize that? We didn't make it far at all. But, but God knew all this. God knew all this. He, was, he had a plan. He knew this was going to happen. He still went ahead with his plan. He had thought the whole thing out. You know, Jesus is referred to as being slain from before the foundation of the world. They had talked they knew what the cost would be to create a group of beings called humans that God wanted to create so badly and wanted to have a relationship so badly, and he didn't want them to be robots. Uh, he wanted to create a race, and he was going to, basically this whole thing about living in the earth is all about, it's about a time of testing. This is where we decide our future is in this earth while we're living. We get to be born and we get to decide do we want to live for God and end up in heaven in God's eternal kingdom forever, which is absolutely amazing, or do we want to go to the other place? And the other place is not our topic today. But I've heard one buddy, person once, it was kind of funny, one of the arguments she used to, gave to give to people who would say, Christians are too... Uh, what's it we're accused of sometimes? We're, we're, 
Well, um, that's one of the things, um, amongst others. Uh, we're, we're too narrow-minded. We're too narrow-minded, I think was the, was the one. Narrow-minded. You don't look at options. And he says, well, he said, um, um, actually, he says, Jesus was not near so narrow-minded as, as, as you all, or as, all, as you all say is, because you say there's only one place to go to. Everybody ends up in heaven at some point. He says, Jesus was a lot more broad-minded. He said there was two. <laughs> he said there was two places that people go to, not just one. And based on everything that the scripture tells us and how it has proven to be right to the T time after time again, it's all right. You can bank on it. There are two places. And hallelujah, if you're here today and you know Jesus, you're on the winning team. You're going to the right place. You're going to the place that you want to go to. Hallelujah. So, repent. You see, God had this all planned out from the beginning. He knew what was going to happen. You see, he, not only did he know, but he put all the ingredients there for everything to happen that had to happen. He knew it had to happen. But he also knew what he was going to have to do to fix it. You see, he knew that he, if he was going to give us choices and that we would get to choose whether to follow God or not, he knew that at some point, and he knew how early on it would be, we were going to fail. He knew that. Not only did he know that, but you know who he puts right there in that beautiful garden? He put, he allowed the serpent to be there. Satan, remember, and his angels were cast down to earth after they rebelled. God could have banished them to bottomless pit, Revelation calls it right away. He could have, um, he could have banished them to another planet. He could have banished them to, the, he could have just evaporated them. He could have just gotten rid of them. He didn't. They have a purpose. They have a purpose. It's all in God's plan. Not only were there going to be two places that we got to choose which one we wanted to end up in, but there were going to be two masters, and we get to choose which master we want to serve, and which master we choose to serve is determines our future, where we end up. You end up with whatever master. When Jesus talks about the other place, it's really interesting. He says, well, he gives a story where the, those who chose that side, uh, it says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into eternal fire. He says, prepared, he wasn't prepared for man, he says, prepared for the devil and his angels. That was the place that God prepared for the devil and his angels, and you only end up there if you follow that being. Not if you follow Jesus. So God puts all the ingredients there because he knows what he's going to do, and he has a plan. And so with the word repent, it just means turn. Every one of us, the Bible says that we go astray from the womb. We're born in sin. We have inherited sin. We, we go astray from the womb. And uh, every one of us, it says, is turned to our own way. It's how we were born. Adam and Eve chose it. They were created perfect. Perfect. They were without sin. But they chose to believe Satan in the Garden of Eden through the serpent. And, 
And now we're born in the same way. And to turn, to repent, simply means you're going this way with the wrong master, serving sin, serving self, not serving the right master. And one day, you have a wake-up call, however it happens. Everybody's story is different. I know people who all of a sudden, it kind of comes down to really the work of the Holy Spirit, either way that it happens, who one day under conviction of the Holy Spirit realize, you know what? If I just started to read my Bible, I know the Bible is the truth and I'll find God. And you know what? They get saved. Another person, maybe a friend, talks to them. Um, there are stories today in, in the Muslim world where um, uh, God gives these people vision. The people he's calling out and are, are getting saved, he'll give them a supernatural vision and reveals himself to them. And they have the same experience after that, which is to repent, which simply means I'm going this way. It's the wrong way. Oh, God is over here. I'm going to turn my back now on Satan and the old life I was living. I'm going to turn to God. That's all it means to turn. It's not a big, scary word. We've made it into a big, scary word, but it's not. So it's a real simple message. Turn. Turn from the old and believe the gospel. Real simple. Turn and believe the gospel. Now, I love, I love, as you follow through the story, Mark is so succinct. It's such a small, compact book, and it moves so quickly. And every verse is loaded with so much information. But, um, um, it's just an amazing story. He, he begins to call his disciples, and we've skipped over some stuff, but, but he begins to call his disciples. And he tells them, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they do. They become fishers of men. And if you're walking with the Lord, to one form or another, just if you don't feel like you are yet, just ask, pray about it. Ask the Lord. He'll, he'll make you. If you just stick with the Lord, it's a natural fruit of the Spirit in your life. At some point in your Christian life, you will become, I promise you, if you're walking with the Lord, you will become a fisher of men because it's the work that God does in your life very naturally. And sometimes it's just, it's just living. You ever heard what people say about Christians? Uh, one of the things they say, I mean, they say a lot of derogatory things, they do, but Another thing that they say, I'll have this sometimes where they'll, all of a sudden, something they'll prompt them to ask, are you religious or something? Yeah, I'm a Christian. And then this is what they say. They said, I knew it. You have that, and this is what they say. You have that glow about you. You have that glow about you. I'm not sure exactly what they mean exactly. I just think it has to do, though, with, with maybe the joy of God. You're different because you've got, you've got the light turned on. You got the electricity, you're not the dark lamp that has no power source. You've been plugged in to your spiritual source, Jesus Christ. You're shining, you're alive. That's not normal in this world. Oh, there's a, although there's a lot of saved people. I remember the craziest thing that ever happened to me with that was way back. Um, I had just, I was a young adult at that point. I was probably 23, 24 years old, and had just really kind of gotten on track with the Lord again, although I'd been raised in a Christian home and, and saved at a young age, but really got on track again and was coming alive in the Lord. And it was a time where 
I would read the scriptures and the Lord would show me something really cool. And then sometime in the next few days, he would do something uh, and show it to me. Not only would he show it to me in the word, but something, some sort of thing would happen and I would get to see it. So uh, I was reading the story about the transfiguration and the, and the face of Jesus shining. And I, and I was realizing that, that uh, Moses, you know, had, was the same sort of thing where Moses would go into the tabernacle and he would come out and his face was literally shiny. It's probably like, uh, heck, I don't know, like a version of the sun, maybe a little bit less, but, but shining to the extent that the first time he came out, everybody ran away from him. They were scared to death of what they saw. It was like an apparition coming out of the tabernacle. The man's face was glowing and shining. And so he had to, from then on, he had to wear a veil over his face because he would shine from the glory of God. And then Paul picks up on that and says, we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image. And there is a glow about God's people that the unsaved pick up on. So back then I was read this and I was really excited. I was like, I wonder how that works. And I was, uh, I don't know if I actually consciously thought, and I wonder what God's going to show me this time because that's what he's been doing lately. But I, I would go out my, uh, a couple days a week on my lunch I'd walk about a block away to the railroad tracks and I would talk to hobos and uh, I'd share the Lord with them and stuff. And, and, um, and this one day, the Lord had just shown me this. I walk out there and there was this really weird environment. All these people, they were like in their own little bubble of spiritual confusion. It was really weird, different than what I normally, I don't know how to describe it other than that. And this one guy had this bottle of whiskey or whatever it was he was drinking. <laughs> and it was so funny. Takes a swig, puts it down, he looks at me, and nobody else heard what he said because they were like in this weird spiritual bubble of, of, it was really weird. He puts it down, he looks at me, he goes, and he was scared to death. He goes, he's glowing! <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know, if the Lord opened his eyes to see it, as if, you know, in the Bible, sometimes the Lord would open people's eyes and they saw more than what you see in the physical. I kind of think that might be what happened. I think it was way beyond what I get from unbelievers. You, they just, I knew it. You have that glow about you. Uh, I think he saw more than that. And it was really kind of crazy. The Lord was showing me, if you spend time with me, you reflect my glory. Now, mostly, it's going to be in other ways, not like that. Uh, just character more that they see, uh, reflections of Christ that they pick up on. Um, but uh, once again, we're getting off track here. But sometimes that's kind of fun to do. So, the gospel. God has had a plan from the beginning, and... Paul talks about it this way. The terminology he uses, it says, it's pleased God to bring many sons to glory. Now, this is an interesting concept because Jesus, in some of his sayings, he said this. Um, let's see if I can find it here. I actually just wrote some of these out. thought it might be easier, although them flipping, that's kind, of, that's kind of a pain too, isn't it? Um, so, uh, here we go. Enter 
by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are few that find it. Now, how do you, what do we do with that? Because here Jesus says there's going to be few that are saved. And in, in Romans, it says that it was going to please God to bring many sons to glory. Well, let's jump ahead all the way to the book of Revelation and, and, and those visions that God gave there toward the end. Remember what John sees in heaven? The multitude. And I saw a great multitude from that no man could number from every tribe, nation, tongue, people. Okay, by the time you finally get to heaven, there is going to be a multitude so large, John says no man could number it. Uh, but as huge as that group is, compared to the whole, it's going to be small. Let me just give you some numbers here. Um, so take the United States, for example. Roughly 75% of the population will claim the Christian faith. Now, of that 75%, if you go to those people that will tell you they're born again, Bible-believing, Jesus-freak Christians, right? It's one of every four. It's 25% of the country. That's probably a more realistic number of who are, are I mean, it's easy to take the name of Christ. Yeah, I, I you know, yeah. Now, has he been to church in the last five years? No. Does he walk with the Lord? No. Have you ever read his Bible? Maybe not. Okay, but I'm a Christian. Well, why? Well, I live in the United States, don't I? Okay, so that's kind of what I'm getting at. 75% will name Christianity as their religion in the United States. So, but that number is not near, we're not nearly there as far as who's actually Bible-believing Christians. But when you think about the fact that 25% of America is God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians, that's actually pretty sane. Now, compared to the whole, just like Jesus said, it'll be few. Few there be that find it. Many that are going to go the broad, easy way. But by the time you get to heaven and you add up these kind of numbers, it is a multitude over all of history with 7.5 billion people on the planet today. By the way, of that 7.5 billion, a third have take the name of Christianity, actual, those who will tell you they are Bible-believing, born-again Christians, is just a little over a half billion. Still a lot of people. And that's just right now. Those people are steadily dying and going to heaven, and there are new people being replaced. That number of people who end up in heaven just keeps growing. Compared to the whole, just like Jesus said, it's few, but by the time you get to heaven, it's an innumerable multitude of saved people. <clears throat> so God had a plan to save many. And let's just look a little bit here. Uh, our time's about done. So let's try to kind of wrap up here. So let's don't pass this by, though. Before he jumps into his ministry, okay, um, He's baptized. The first thing, he shows up on the scene. Mark, again, it's so succinct. He shows up. He's baptized. 
And I'd never noticed this till the other day. I was, I was reading the story. You know what it says when he was baptized? I always remember, you know, that, the, that after he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down. I never noticed the wording there before. It's pretty astounding. It says that as Jesus was baptized, okay, he's starting his ministry, which is going to be to open the door for heaven to anybody who wants it. It says the heaven is ripped open. That's the exact wording. Ripped open, and the Holy Spirit comes down upon Jesus. Now, I don't know if you get the significance of this, but it's awesome. In other words, God's plan from the beginning was to send his son. God wants to save people. And when it's time now for Jesus, I mean, God had to be excited. It's like, yeah, we've been waiting a long time for this. Rip. He rips the heaven open. The Holy Spirit comes down upon his son to anoint him and begin his ministry. This was a ministry right from heaven. This was the man who was God, now born as a man, who is from heaven here to take people to heaven and save them. The Christmas songs we sing, you, you didn't sing one today, but you, when you, you were practicing, um, long lay the world in sin and darkness pining till he appeared and the soul felt his worth. He rips the heaven open. God was excited. This was big stuff. The time had finally come. God and his son had been waiting for thousands of years to do this. They were still saving people before. The people before looked ahead to this day. But now it is finally here. And it wasn't, this was a God thing. This was straight from heaven, rips the heaven open. And then from there, the next thing that happens, he's baptized. You know, the immediate next thing, it's just boom, boom, boom in, in Mark. Immediately, the spirit drives him out into the desert and he's there for 40 days and you're like what how is this any way to start the ministry that's going to change the planet forever well it goes back to the beginning in the garden of eden what happened there man the first man and woman the first time they encounter the devil they fall into sin immediately now for jesus to be the savior of the world he had to do what the first man and woman didn't do he had to conquer the gosh dang devil and he did he's out in the in the wilderness now imagine this the first temptation they're in the garden it's comfortable and nice they are in the paradise of god paradise on earth everything is there Everything is provided for them. They have perfect bodies. Sin and death haven't entered the world yet. They don't, they don't all, their only job was to just take care of the paradise God gave them. They didn't have to work to earn their food. There was no need for money. There was, they didn't have jobs to get up in the morning. They just were to tend and care for this beautiful paradise that God gave them. And in that perfect environment, the second they're introduced to the tempter, they fall just like that. Now, Jesus, he doesn't go back to the paradise in this nice, gushy, cushy environment. He goes out to the desert. Not only does he go out to the desert, he is without food during this time of intense temptation for 40 days and 40 nights. And the Bible tells us three of the temptations, but it also, if you read the, read the story, it was 40 days. It just tells us three. It was 40 days of the most intense time of tempting you've ever seen. 
This was, this, the whole thing was going to hinge on this right here because it's where it started. First man and Eve, Adam and Eve, fell immediately to the temptation. Now Jesus is going to go through it on steroids. This is hyperdrive temptation. This is, the Garden of Eden was, was child's playing, yet we fell. Jesus is subjected without food in the desert, 40 days and 40 nights of the most, it must have been crazy, everything that Satan tried. Every, Satan, by this point, has had thousands of years to tempt mankind, and he is successful, he is successful, he is successful, he is successful. He knows what he's doing, and he's good at it. He's called the tempter. Now he's got thousands of years of practice. He is throwing everything, all his tricks, at Jesus. He can't get him. And what's interesting, when that time finishes, it says, so Satan departed from him for a season. That wasn't the end, but it's, it's the, the main critical thing. It starts, it launches his ministry. First thing he has to do is defeat the tempter and go back to the beginning and do what the first man and the first woman failed at immediately. We've all failed at. And he does it. He conquers him. Then he begins his ministry. And for sake of time, uh, we're going to wrap it up. But, but if, you, if you go through, what you then get into is miracle after miracle, healing after healing, manifestations of the glory of God and the power of God the sick are healed. The dead are raised. And, and, and it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting that Jesus is trying to, each situation when he heals somebody or does something crazy, amazing, good for him, in some cases he tells them, now go home and tell your family, tell your friends about it. But in most cases, you know what he keeps telling them? Don't tell anybody. And I love the story. And they immediately went out and they told everybody and his fame spread everywhere. And you get into chapter two, he's to the point where it says he could no longer even enter a village openly. He had to sneak into villages because he was like, you know, if, if Madonna came to town, everybody knew her. Yeah. Okay. If uh, who's, who's somebody that, that people would just be, you know, uh, dying to see if you're back in the 60s if the Beatles came to town oh my goodness right remember how it was with the Beatles well this is how it got with Jesus he couldn't even enter a city he would go and then they would he would show up and they'd figure out he was in a house they would bring it says every sick person every demon afflicted person and it says and the whole city was gathered together at the door where he was the entire city and then you come to the end after all this crazy stuff, strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. And exactly what happens. And in the book of Acts chapter 1, how many faithful people are left after multitudes, thousands and thousands of people following Jesus? How many are left? 120 in the upper room. Doesn't look like it's been so successful. And yet, you see... God had a plan. And Jesus, what he did was just step one. Just step one. And now the Holy Spirit is given and the church launches. And by the time you get down several chapters into Acts, this is pretty crazy. Uh, Peter, uh, I forget which of the patriarchs there in the church is talking with, I think it's Paul, and he says, you see how many tens of thousands there are who believe. This is in Jerusalem. 
tens of thousands who believe. Okay, so Jesus' plan, uh, he had a plan from the beginning to save many. He's doing it. You? And yet it is many. 25% of the population, God-fearing Christians, born-again Christians, that's actually remarkable if you think about it. That's crazy. It's sad that it couldn't be 75%. It's really sad that it couldn't be 100%. But all part of God, it's all part of God's plan. We get to choose. Nobody's going to be in heaven that didn't want to be there. There's not going to be one person. Think about that. There will be nobody in heaven that didn't want to get there. Only going to be the people that wanted to get there. I'll be there with Jesus. There won't be any... Um, What's the word? Um, reluctant uh, visitors in heaven. No reluctant ones. People that wanted to be there. We're on the right team. And as you read the stories of what Jesus did, I, one of the thoughts that was just coming to me is, is how present he was, how involved he was, how able he was, how miraculous his powers are, and he is present with us through the Holy Spirit. And what excited me, amongst other things, was I need to let the Lord be more involved. This is Abel, it's like in the boat. How can you even have this conversation after seeing what I do? What, what's wrong with you? I'm God, the Son of God. I have all power. What's wrong with you? And what is wrong with us? Why don't I? Why don't I involve the Lord more? I should. I need to. Because he wants to be. He wants to be. He wants to be God does. Hallelujah. We're on the right team. That. <laughs>